This is Joanna Harcourt-Smith for FuturePrimitive.org and I feel incredibly happy and fortunate to be here in Santa Fe tonight with Barbara Tedlock and Dennis Tedlock. Uh, I will read a little of Barbara and Dennis's um, story, life story. Barbara Tedlock, PhD, is the granddaughter of an Ojibwe midwife and herbalist and was trained and initiated as a shaman by the Quiche Maya of Highland Guatemala. Distinguished professor of anthropology at SUNY Buffalo and research associate at the School of American Research in Santa Fe, New Mexico. For many years, she co-edited The American Anthropologist with her husband, Dennis Tedlock, the author of four previous books and numerous essay, essays. She divides her time between Buffalo, New York, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. Barbara Tedlock uh, published a book a year ago called The Woman in the Shaman's Body, and we will talk about that book tonight. Um, also here with us is Dennis Tedlock, who is McNulty Professor of English at SUNY Buffalo and the author of six books. His translation of the Popol Vuh, the Mayan Book of the Dawn of, of the Mayan Book of the Dawn of Life, won the Penn Translation Award. So uh, lovely to be here with you and um, I would like to jump right in and uh, ask you uh, about it is much uh, spoken about the solitary shaman the man shaman who heals and here um, I am with a, a pair of shamans who create healing together. So, um, Dennis, just because you're right next to me, uh, and Barbara is in the other chair, I will give you the microphone first and ask you to speak about that. Well, we didn't know that this was a possibility when we were doing our field work in uh, Guatemala. I was translating the Pobol Vuh, and Barbara was working on her uh, doctoral thesis. And uh, we met uh, some interesting people there, and we began to go to a lot of shrines. We were attracted to shrines that are down in canyons, up on the hilltops and mountaintops, and and we were noticed. And uh, as the story unfolded. Uh, uh, well, to make a long story short, uh, we, came, we asked uh, shamans there all kinds of questions about what they did, and then we decided to ask them how they were trained. And uh, Andres Shiloh Peruch said, well, for example, if I were to train you two, I would have to begin on such and such a day on the Maya calendar, and it would take four and a half months. And he went on like this, and in a kind of neutral tone, where we couldn't tell quite what he meant. And uh, so uh, we debated about that uh, all night. And maybe Barbara would take it from there. Yeah, we debated about it all night because we both had something to lose and something to gain. Uh, 
my husband was a professor already um, at Yale University. I was a graduate student. And so I could lose getting a dissertation. I could be accused of inventing this stuff. He could be made into a laughingstock by his colleagues. But yet we knew what we were being offered was so special that we just said, okay. So the next morning <laughs> we met with Andres and his wife, Manuela, and we said, um, when you talked last night, and you said, if I were to train you, I'd have to begin on such and such a day, did you mean that? Or, I mean, was that a just an example, a hemplo? <laughs> and um, he said, of course I'm, I'm ready to train you. <laughs> we were astounded, you know. So... What we did is I sat down and wrote to my three Ph.D. committee members because I thought it was ethical. I wrote a letter to each one explaining what we were about to do and had very strange responses. One faculty member um, wrote back instantly uh, and got his answer. Uh, Peter First, and he's an expert on... Um, uh, hallucinogens among Native American peoples and he worked with the Weechul for many years and did a wonderful Weechul film and he wrote back, he said, how wonderful that you would allow yourself to be trained, this will be an inside perspective, please go for it another person never answered, in fact the other two never answered in letter form, but about a week later, the second person on the committee showed up at our front door and started screaming at me and saying, you know, that I was a disgrace and that's when we learned something we didn't know about the guy who liked it and this guy. They both had gotten their PhDs at UCLA, and they both were classmates of Carlos Castaneda. And I was ringing the Castaneda button without realizing it. The third guy was a linguist who couldn't care one way or the other. And um, maybe just uh, something more about that, too. So he he did explain to us, they explained to us, that uh, we were very fortunate. Uh, they said it was the ideal, actually, to train a couple, uh, but it didn't always happen. We were very fortunate. And that the rule there still is that if, uh, for example, a person who is a trained shaman marries a man or a woman who is not, the other person must undertake training. You cannot have a shaman married to a non-shaman. I wanted to ask you, uh, just to make it a little clearer, when you say ringing the Carlos Castaneda button, um, would either of you want to respond about that? Uh, we knew Carlos and bumped into him now and then. He used to come to anthropology meetings, the national meetings. And uh, we we uh, published for many years a, a, a a literary uh, magazine, a small magazine called Altering Ethnopoetics. We always set up a table surreptitiously at, at the anthropology meetings. And Carlos always stopped by, and each time he said he would send us something to publish in the magazine. By about the t second time he said it, we realized it would never happen. And then we had friends who wanted to meet him, and each time someone said, is he here and could you introduce me, we looked around the room and he was always within 25 feet. And we said, well, actually, he's standing right behind you. And, uh, and the, the disappointing thing, these were two guys who thought they were really cool. And he, both of them, they didn't know each other. 
the first thing they said was, I've always wanted to meet you. <laughs> and, and you're sort of embarrassed by that. Anyway, uh, for me, ringing the Carlos Castaneda bell meant that I was some kind of a fraud. And that, uh, in fact, I had a fellow classmate who's a dear friend of mine now who called me Carlita Castaneda. <laughs> Little Carlita, you know, and it was a joke. I was a joke. So the notion was that it was all invented, it was all a fraud, and, um, which it wasn't, of course. We keep saying Castaneda because that's what he preferred for reasons best known to himself. What did it feel like? What was it like to be uh, in this Guatemalan village a long time ago together? How did it begin to transform you? Um, it was like no place we'd ever lived before. It's um, it's up in the pine forest, so it's cool. It's not tropical. In fact, it's so cool that I got pneumonia more than once uh, because people don't have heat in their houses. So, I mean, it's like in Spain where people don't heat their houses. <laughs> Only in the highlands of Guatemala, it's even cooler than in Spain. So um, that was part of it. And the other part was that we had no idea what we were falling into, but that we were ready. You know, it was that sort of thing. And that we realized that we were entering a world that we didn't really know existed. We never knew couples would be trained. We didn't know much about women as shamans, uh, except that we'd heard about Maria Sabina and a few individual women. It was always like an exception. And here we were in a community filled with both men and women shamans. And we were being trained as a couple, and we were so surprised. And we thought, how interesting. And what would happen? I mean, if we're trained together as shamans, how could we ever be separate again? One of the things I remember is uh, we we, uh, hiked around a lot, and and this was noticed, uh, and uh, uh, people began to talk about it. We didn't know that people were thinking, oh, there they are again, you know. <laughs> and we were figuring out that there were days when no one was at these places and then days when they were. And once we got attuned to the calendar, we realized in this place down in the canyon, it had to be a day numbered one. There was a hilltop where it had to be a day numbered eight and so on. And and uh, But we we discovered a lot of shrines that no one sent us to because they burn so much copal incense and it has such a distinctive odor. Even a shrine where it's not being burnt currently has this odor. So you can be walking through the woods and you know that there's a sacred place nearby. So it was a it was an unexpected world um, in, in that, you know, I had hidden from the shamanic possibility because my grandmother was a practicing shaman and she was interested in me and wanted me to follow that path but my mother disagreed uh, and so I kind of had been hiding from it and then all of a sudden here it was and um, and, and Dennis was you know I, I would say that you were more open and you had less hang ups than I did in a funny way perhaps so I don't know I guess I was um, I don't really know why uh, it just seemed like a like an opening, and maybe uh, well, this would be part of it too. I uh, I was raised a Lutheran, 
And I, there was a period around when I was doing confirmation class that I was taking it pretty seriously, but I noticed no one else was. And I thought to myself, I, I was even moved by certain things that we did. And I thought, what? But there's nothing. There's nothing here. Nobody else is. Thing. I, I didn't have any sense of the sacred. Uh, in that context, I always envied, envied Catholics for all those images and the incense. And see, there's the incense again. So, uh, uh, so I, I felt disappointed in the spiritual realm. Yeah. Whereas my background was, uh, I was confirmed Roman Catholic first, and then confirmed Episcopalian second, Church of England, and so I had that double dose. And, uh, I, you know, lots of incense and lots of fighting because within the family, there's a big difference between Church of England and, you know, Popism, as they call it, and a big, big fight, big rift in my family because of that. And those are the two religions that had, um, done the most to proselytize to Native American people in Canada. And my grandmother was from Canada. So both of those religions kind of were all over indigenous people in Canada. So that's why I come from Roman Catholic and Episcopalian. How does one live the sacred in this modern, fast, stressful world? And how does that tie in with being shamans? Well, that's a very good question because in an urban situation, and if you're not... uh, um, well, it depends. You know, if you can just switch venues, like some uh, friends of ours took us to a Russian Orthodox Christmas Eve ceremony. You know, they're on the Julian calendar, and it's about January. Christmas Eve, I think, is January 6th. And uh, because it was so different, and because, uh-oh, here comes incense again. And you have to stand up for about four hours... And this was a very friendly uh, priest who, who ex- he stopped every now and then to explain, he realized there were visitors to explain everything. And if you stand for four and a half hours while breathing huge quantities of incense, you get high. Right. And, and also he took this nice, wonderful hot oil and anointed us with it. You know, I mean, it was, it was quite remarkable. So that's part of it. The other part is to simply, um, just share what we know, like what we were doing tonight. We train other people. We teach them what it is. And it's quite extraordinary because we don't hide who we are. Some people thought, oh, they're shamans. This is so weird and so forth. But now I now have students. I teach huge introductory anthropology courses uh, who come to me during office hours because I'm a shaman as well as I'm their professor. And they have serious problems. And they need another perspective you know and I say to them well I'm not the teacher now I'm shifting perspective you know and I'm giving you this other read and people have accepted it it was very interesting when my book the woman in the shaman's body came out we teach at a big public institution with no religion department on it you can't have religion in the state university of New York in any of the schools we don't have any study of religion only in private institutions when my book came out they put it up as one of the banner things 
on the whole website for the entire university. It was the banner for, oh gosh, for three or four months. There were four banner items. There were three things in medical science and my woman in the shaman's body. And because I've never been ashamed and I've told everybody and never hidden it and said it in a normal voice, um, I think, wouldn't you say that's how it's worked for both of us? And I, I think that's becoming more and more true. But here's this reminds me of one of the things that happened when we got back, uh, or actually we were back for a while during the training, and then we went back to continue. Uh, and our friends would ask us if we told them anything about it. Um, oh, do you believe that? And this is... We get asked that question since then, obviously, and sometimes by students uh, who don't understand that if you're not dealing with one of these world religions that makes a claim to universal truth, that no one ever asks you to believe anything. It's a practice, and if it works for you, it works for you. If it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. There's no creed, and there's no one checking to see if you're orthodox, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really quite uh, quite different uh, than, uh, than the whole notion of I believe this and that. The other thing we didn't expect was that once we were initiated, what happened was they brought all kinds of clients to us. People were checking to see if we could speak the language, if we could heal. We, we went underwent a lot of tests right afterwards. Uh, what was interesting about all of that is that our teachers then presented themselves within about three days and said, well, do you have any questions of us? I.e., what they did was they turned themselves into informants again a role they hadn't had for months with us. And they explained to us that you're everything you've ever been. You can't erase yourself or history. No erasure of time. And so that's the way we've lived. We're everything. We're, and because you don't erase, you don't have a conversion and deny, you're just a 100% of whatever it is. And I think be, that was a real blessing to us because now we just go forward in the world and uh, we are all the things we are. And you see, so for them, there was no question of going... They didn't think they were making us into Mayans. They thought they were teaching us something uh, useful, spiritually and, and in, in every other way, uh, practical. So uh, uh, they never imagined that we would stop being professors or any such thing, or that we would live in Guatemala forever. Uh, so again, that goes with this whole... See, there's a whole myth in the anthropology about going native. We don't know of anyone who ever really did that. But it's always taught to as a danger. If you go too far into the culture of the other, you might not, never come back. Yeah, I, I've recently written an article about becoming bicultural. I've made an argument for if people can truly become bilingual or multilingual, why can't they be bicultural or multicultural? Why not? And this, it's interesting, it's been through peer review. I have four uh, responses that I have to answer when we go to the AAA in about 10 days in San Jose because people either loved it or hated it, nothing in between. And so now I'm going to answer to the editor. She likes it herself, thank goodness. But the whole notion that people could be bicultural and multicultural is considered um, strange. I would really like to move into uh, the perspective 
of uh, the woman shaman. Uh, I'd like to go to Dennis first, actually, and ask you, what is your perspective, your vision of the woman shaman in this world today? I can say something very specific about that because um, uh, when we went to to Mongolia uh, for a meeting of the International Society for the Study of Shamanism, which is based in Budapest of all places, uh, in Ulaanbaatar, uh, there was a, a woman shaman. Well, they invited. Um, they were having it there because it didn't happen in Paris because the French Academy of Sciences wouldn't fund a conference in which practicing shamans were in attendance, by the way. So there we were in Ulaanbaatar. Mm. And and where about 30 shamans were invited to the conference and they were wearing name badges like everyone else, listening very carefully. And one of them, uh, Bayar Odun, who prom- figures prominently in uh, Barbara's book, uh invited anyone who was interested one evening to uh, come to a seance at her, uh, her, her... She really lives in Hovskal, which is on the border of... of uh, uh, the, where the Buryats are in, up in Siberia. But uh, she comes down to Ulaanbaatar because she had relatives there, and she was holding forth in their house on the outskirts. Uh, where a lot of people, the whole city is surrounded by gurs, the, the yurts. And uh, uh, I saw the most amazing sh- shamanic performance I've ever seen uh, right there. So I've seen the woman shaman uh, do the whole classic performance right there in the homeland. Yeah, in Mongolia, there are men shamans and women shamans. And the women shamans are considered more powerful than the men as a group. There's always exceptions. Uh, and the women shaman are powerful, they say, because they menstruate or they once menstruated and they have feminine energy. And Bayaradun uh, was able to drum for hours and hours and hours into the night. I mean, she was like electric. Uh, they were, they were men shaman around too, but um, these women, and then they, they can heal person after person after person without being tired. It, it's quite stunning to see. So women shamans, and they're all over like Northern California. Um, we knew Essie Parrish, very famous woman shaman there. Uh, and uh, women shamans are, have been all over the world. But what happened was the word shaman s- got distorted uh, by English speakers as S-H-A hyphen M-A-N. And uh, Robert Bly and some other men made the argument in founding what's called the men's movement that the plural of shaman is S-H-A-M-E-N and that it's really a male practice and that women have tried to abscond with the, with the jewels and that it's not theirs. You can see from the word itself that it's a male practice. And the second argument is that if you look on the cave, uh, the, uh, you look at the cave art and you see shamans, you see antlers on them. And only male deer have antlers. Well, if we hadn't gone to Mongolia, we wouldn't know what a lie that was. In Mongolia, the reindeer, uh, both the males and the females, have antlers. And the largest racks are on the female reindeer. 
and they are the leaders of the herds, the female reindeer, and the guys follow. They're the, like the number two. They round up everybody in the back. We would never have known that. So the combination of this false, you know, kind of etymology for what shaman is, because the real word is S-H-A-M, which means to know, and then A-N is the one who. So it's the one who knows. It has nothing to do with maleness or femaleness. It's the knower. You know, so that whole issue is quite interesting. And women shamans are, um, they put together the nurturing with the connection to the power of the universe in a most remarkable and ferocious way. I mean, that's the only way, I, wouldn't you say, that's the only word we can use to describe women shamans. They're ferocious. They're really strong. You know, Not that guys aren't strong. But when you see a woman shaman, and what's interesting in Mongolia, they wear, like, there we have a piece of art. There's a woman, a Mongolian woman shaman. They wear this, these uh, strands over their faces, uh, sort of like a semi-veil, and they do that on purpose because they say that they frighten their audience because their faces change, young and old, strong and weak. And so they wear a little bit of covering so that people don't get scared. And it's also interesting that... Um I don't know how shamanism, especially as being reported by the Russians, uh, played out in the rest of Europe. Uh, but in Russia, they never made that mistake. The whole Russian ethnographic literature about shamanism is not at all distorted along gender lines. The whole story is there, uh, and somehow it got twisted out of shape when it went a little farther west. Dennis is the one who translated uh, the Popol Vuh. And so I would like to ask you, what, you Barbara, what uh, the Popol Vuh, what meanings it has for you? Um, it was wonderful that when we decided to go into the field, that he had a project. And his project was was to return a sacred book to the people who the book had been taken from. The Highland Maya, the, the Popol Vuh is in um, uh, Chicago at the Newberry Library. It's the only copy. It was not available to Mayans living in Guatemala. It was not being taught in the schools. It was part of their tradition that had been erased. And Dennis was thinking, well, I'd like to work with living Mayan shamans. I want to, I'm working on a difficult text shamans or diviners, they're willing to work with difficult texts. I was thrilled because what it meant to me was that he was doing something that was authentic. I was doing something a little less authentic. I wanted to get a PhD in anthropology. I wanted to describe a community. I wasn't I wasn't doing something as useful to the culture. You know, and that's the way I saw it. And so I was thrilled when he would work with these different shamans uh, on on this sacred book and when they would suddenly break out laughing and to discover that the sacred book of the Maya had humor it had sex in it it was incredible it was like any good sacred book and I was go, wow this is great because they all be laughing you know, and I'll be talking about this you know there's this crab and all these different funny things happening and is it this sexual position or is it this I was going whoa this is very interesting Stuff. So from my perspective, it was wonderful to be with somebody who was working on the sacred book of people who had been removed. And he was, you know, part of uh, in trying to bring it back. And by the way, it is back now in Guatemala. Maybe you want to tell that story. 
Enrique Samkolop, who was a student of ours at SUNY Buffalo. He's a linguist, among other things, a speaker of Quiche uh, from the town of Gantel uh, in the Western Highlands. Uh, he published in 99 the first critical, well, the only text of the, the Mayan text of the Popol Vuh that had ever been published by a Mayan, needless to say. Uh, but, but it's a, you know, he was able to, it, it's, a, it's, there are all kinds of problems in the text because it was recopied many times. So he's straightened all of that out with the sensibilities of a na- native speaker. That book was published in Guatemala City by a Guatemalan publishing house run off on a, in a print shop owned by Mayans and is distributed free to bilingual schools in Guatemala. But here's the, the point is, so in 1999, the Quiche Maya and, and other people speaking related languages get direct access to the text of their, their sacred book in the original language in 1999. That's quite a long wait. I would uh, love to talk with you or to hear you rather talk about, um, well, four words, ecstasy, Eros, tenderness, and beauty. Speak to me, shamans. <laughs> That's a shaman's question. <laughs> they're all connected at the root. And if they're not connected at the root, they're not real. So ecstasy and Eros, beauty, they're all, they're all one and they're intertwined and they're the, at the heart of healing. And that's why we're practicing healing shamans, because um, we know that ecstasy and we use it to heal people. That's why we don't, you know, you saw us tonight, we're not that tired, you know. It just, we do what we do, and we do it out of love, right, ecstasy. Um, I There was a person I was talking with today, and I realized what her problem was, and I just reached, and I felt it, and I felt it in my whole body. You know, I felt it ecstatically. And she described how she had a snake that had come along and gone up through her vagina into the into her body and was lodged sideways. And I looked and I could see it. I saw into her body. And that's what a real shaman can do. And that's what we learn to do. So, and I never have had anybody present something like that to me before. So, every day as a shaman, when you you know, this was about 30 some odd people there this afternoon. When you have that many people, there are going to be one or two people who will present the most extraordinary things to you. And what she was presenting was a combination of ecstasy and, um, passing through to the other side. She was, she herself was showing me a shamanic possibility, you know, in her history. Uh, that was quite remarkable. She also, she has actually two snakes in her. One is this yellow fertilance that's come up through her vagina. The other came in through her left arm across her chest and was lodged under her right arm. And that was a reddish snake with diamond back colors. And she, and it was so strange, I walked around the side of her body and her arm just about swung out unconsciously to hit me. It was unbelievable to protect her from somebody walking near her. So that combination of the the beauty of it, and when I was able to like cut through and release her, and she just said, 
oh, you mean it's okay? And I said, well, yes, that's what shamans do. Well, you don't know what's uh, going to... Uh, you know, some people have very ordinary problems, and then some people you really get excited about. And it's really, but it's really a pleasure just to have someone say, "Well, oh, that's not there anymore," or the sheer. Um, when we do the hands-on thing, we ask, "Now, can you feel that?" Especially when we send the energy out. We've never had anyone say no yet. So, yeah, but we like to. Uh, uh, keep in dialogue with uh, it doesn't work unless you know so the only people who are a problem making this connection on all these levels including kind of a, a generalized emotional level are, are people who think they're in yet another consulting room you know and they're just plop there and you're going to do something that will make them feel better uh, and and we've learned uh, th- through through practice to to really insist on on that interaction. But I'm trying to I'm trying to find different answers to uh, uh, another approach to your questions. One thing that interests us about this particular system is that you could almost say uh, that it gives you a method to to spread the ecstasy out. Uh, some systems emphasize peak experiences. You know, uh, an, ex- an example would be a, a shamanic performance in which almost afterwards the performer says uh, that he or she, I mean, they say afterwards, well, what did I say? You know, And in some of those traditions, there's even a second role for the interpreter. And, and so people have this this gap, you know, they go so deeply into trance that they say and do things, as, and sometimes they're not very comprehensive. You have to have an interpreter to sort of sort through and listen closely and figure out how to put it into words. This system is not like that. It goes from moment to moment. When you make this connection to the to the uh, to the sheet lightning, it's available at all times. And uh, but each time it happens. Um, it does, for that moment, disconnect all the other systems. I mean, you stop being, you're cognitive only after the fact because you want to tell the other person. You have to interpret the experience for the other person. But in this system, you can do it yourself. You don't, you don't uh, just say something and you don't even know what you said. You, you, you play both roles. And uh, uh, there is. So there is a branch of it where they they uh, go into a kind of it's not quite like talking in tongues, but it's it's in that direction. Right. Um, it, there's different kinds of uh, shamanizing and trancing, and one is might be called alert shamanizing, and that's what you saw today. We were both alert. We were both coming in and out of trance states, um, and then there's another that's called mounted shamanizing, and that's one in which it's as though your body's mounted by the power that's coming into you. And you often lose sections of it. You don't remember certain, you can't make it, you know. And I would say today we were both very much in alert shamanizing, you know, with other folks.
What can we do to promote, to facilitate the flow and perhaps even in my narrative, my language, the reconciliation between men and women? Myself, I, I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not sure I've ever had a great problem in that area. Um, I, you know, some of us. I grew up. I always uh, preferred to be in mixed company. I hated situations where everybody was a guy. I did not like the Boy Scouts. I'm glad that I never went into the military. It's, uh, horrible for me to, to uh, and academia used to be much more male than it is now. To go, you learn that when you go to, um, it's no longer true, but in the early career, uh, I was a department chair and I would go to a department chair and there would be 40 people there and one woman and somebody would say some uh, uh, dirty joke and say, oh, with apologies to the lady present. I just wanted to throw up when when that kind of thing happened, I, uh, I thought, yeah, here I am again in the locker room. Uh, I wonder why all these people aren't smoking cigars, you know, like the the way the Victorian gentlemen always retired to a separate room from the women and and uh, and lit up their cigars. Uh, that that was never my my world. So uh, to to begin with, so I'm not sure I can answer that question for people who have that that other orientation, but I can tell you this, because of what happens to somebody like me in a, a, phys, a physical education kind of context, or what, or what would have happened in the army, is the way guys really batter each other down. Uh, the, the way the, Some of the so-called uh, masculine behaviors are learned, and you'd better learn them uh, if you're around the wrong guys. Uh, uh, you wouldn't dare, uh, or a lot, a lot of people would. So a lot of people in those old male groups are really pretending that uh, they're going along with this. Uh, now, I think women used to have more of a, a complementary kind of situation, but I, I can't speak for that. Yeah, um, I would call myself a womanist. I'm not a feminist in that old sense. Uh, I stand with men. Uh, and with women against intolerance and whatnot. And I think that's what's happened to a lot of, a lot of women. Um, I don't like a strong feminist stance, um, in the, in the sense that I like men. I think men are great. Uh, old men, young men, you know, they're, they're wonderful, uh, as well as women. But that, um, I'm in a group called the Women Full Professors at my university, and I'm sorry to say, we're in a huge university, and um, we have a ever-shrinking number of women who are achieving. We are not going in the direction that young women think we're going in. There are fewer women in law school right now. There are fewer women full professors. We're actually going backwards, at least in the United States and Canada. So it's it's very odd to think about. But um, I like men. I think men are great. We were coming to the end of the interview soon, and I would like to ask you uh, about your relationship to healing sacred plants and what you would wish to say about that, Professor and Professor. 
I'll begin with a political remark. The idea that the possession of any plant should be of any kind whatsoever should be illegal is absurd, frightfully absurd to begin with. Uh, and and uh, the, the panic that people surround these things with. I, I, I would even guess that one reason that uh, right now heroin and uh, cocaine are such a problem, of course there's the, the, those other things called recreational drugs, it is it, it is the the way things came down on the psychedelics. We have students who uh, it turns out students, by the way, are still doing these things, but they almost never want to tell you about it. It's it's way underground, and yet if somebody ever dares talk about it, it turns out they're still doing some of these things. But not there's no communal there's no big discussion about it. They're not sharing notes. It's a secret thing, see? Uh, that, that's terribly damaging. Uh, and uh, so we st- there's, there's still a few things that they've forgotten to... I wonder if they're still poisoning morning glory seeds. Do you, are they still doing that? So, so that if you eat too many of them, it makes you sick? Uh, uh, the minute it came out that, that, that you could just go to a seed store and make your own, you know, just eat a bunch of morning glory seeds. They didn't make morning glory seeds illegal, but they did coat them with something. Uh, I mean, it, it's just amazing. Uh, and I suppose back behind there, too, is, I mean, the whole structure of organized religion. I mean, spiritual knowledge is the proper position of people in priesthoods. Uh, n- nobody really wants a fresh uh, revelation of a profound kind. Uh, I mean, the kinds of things that the radio preachers say I wouldn't call inspired in the sense I'm thinking of. So there's a, there's a nervousness that, uh, like all, kind of, all other kinds of things that, that involve suppression of of truth or suppression of of new insights, uh, something very conservative going on there, and yet you know in the range of societies anthropologists know about, uh, uh, there are all kinds of societies that have managed to uh, per- perfectly well coexist with having um, everyone, in fact, almost required to have a psychedelic experience. In many of those societies, the first uh, psychedelic experience that a person has is when they're an infant. And um, it's perfectly, I mean, nothing terrible happens to them. I mean, if you listen to American propaganda, you would think something dreadful would happen to we child children, but nothing terrible happens. Instead, they grow up with a sacred heart. Uh, the one thing about plants that are very dear to me because my grandmother stressed them so much and I would gather plants with her is that plants, if you spend time with them, they will teach you. They really will. You begin to look at them. Suddenly ideas come into your mind or you hear the plant speak and you figure out you know, that you're part of that plant world and that's really quite wonderful. And that can be, uh, this afternoon I was pointing out that uh, once you get attuned to uh, biofields, these energy fields that surround people, the next thing you can discover is that animals have them, and even down to insects. And then Barbara and I discovered just uh, last fall, uh, earlier this fall, 
that uh, uh, it's hard to feel it in a plant. But if you can find not not a flower that's way wide open and is about to wilt, but in a bud, if you put your hand there, you can actually feel the same energy field uh, in a plant. Is there anything um, either of you or both of you would like to add about your practice and your knowledge? It's wonderful to give back, and it's wonderful to open other people to what we've been given and to introduce them, uh, to teach them what we know, uh, and then to uh, let them go to Guatemala, to the people who taught us, and carry themselves on further with their own healing. Um, it's When you work with healing, you just you reap an incredible reward. And when you walk this path, it's it's so enriching. It's it's quite remarkable. Uh, I would regret not having been here. Yes. Uh, and and the, uh, maybe I should say something about our recent experience because more and more, we've done more and more sharing recently. And I think one reason that we were reticent, perhaps more reticent in the past, it is that uh, we didn't realize that there would be so many people who were quite open to this. We were always afraid of ridicule. Uh, But times are changing also. Uh, They're changing so remarkably uh, that uh, the audience is enormous and the audience includes all kinds of people in uh, Western biomedicine, which I never would have... I could not have predicted that 30 years ago that people who are training to be MDs and dentists and uh, whatnot would be totally open and are trying to learn this as well as all the things they learn in medical school. Well, I hope we can have another talk soon and uh, speak about your upcoming book, uh, Barbara, uh, which Pat should just tell us a few words. Yeah, it's called Shamanic Healing in Western Healthcare Today. What it is, I'm the editor of a volume. It's 20 chapters, 10 MDs, and 10 PhDs. Uh, it just turns out to be. And some of the PhDs are, are psychologists, anthropologists, and whatnot. Um, and these are people who are putting shamanic practice into Western clinics and hospitals. There are MDs who do soul retrievals after they complete an operation in an emergency room. They're right there doing it themselves. Um, it, it is quite extraordinary. And this, this started to happen about five years ago, and it's gone very fast in the last couple of years. So um, this book will be a revelation to a number of people who aren't aware that, that this has happened. Um, but I have an impeccable group of authors who nobody can ridicule, uh, they're they're all surgeons and MDs and you know top schools and whatnot and uh, so you can't say that these are fringe people or it, you can't do the dismissal so it's it's going to be fun and the book I'm working on is called the human work the human design two thousand years of Mayan literature and it's the first book to put the hieroglyphic texts and to treat them as literature also together with the alphabetic texts that were written after the conquest by Mayans in their own languages. Uh, so uh, that's, that's what I'm working toward. Thank you both for this extremely delightful moment.
I was able to spend with you because you received me so warmly into your home in Santa Fe. Good night.